welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, we're going to be talking U.S. roster, Major League Soccer, and probably some random stuff along the way. We've already talked Tostones off air because I'm joined <laughs> by Jason Davis, a man who is unimpressed when parents drive their kids around to trick and treat. Trick oh, or treat, I knew excuse this was me. Coming. Jason, any other things you learned from this past Halloween? Uh, well, I saw that you liked that tweet or you, the Total Soccer Show specifically, yes. the faceless entity that is the Total Soccer <laughs> Show, liked that tweet this morning. And I thought, oh, that's going to come up. He's going to ask. It he's sure going to say is. something it about sure Halloween. Is. Well, look, so I have a 13 year old who mm-hmm. is in the late stages of his trick or treating experience. Now, the, the wrinkle there is he's also not a candy kid like he's oh. not is just generally not his thing. He likes Jolly Ranchers. He's very specific, he likes some gummy stuff. But, you know, mm-hmm. if you give him the normal Halloween candy, he's going to mostly say, nah, I'm good. He doesn't like chocolate, that kind of stuff. So I haven't really and, and there's a split parental responsibility thing with him. So I haven't really been involved in the trick or treating thing for a little while. And the other kid is nine months old. He's not going trick-or-treating. I'm not going to put him in a costume and walk around the doorways and say, oh, trick-or-treat. I don't know if you consider that with Revy. It did not happen with us. And so at one point, our neighbor, um, who knows the neighborhood, you know, the, the, the one guy who knows everybody in the neighborhood, partly because he walks his dog and he knows all the dogs. Uh, he's like, yeah, the, the, the scene is like th- like four streets away. It's like hundreds of kids are walking around because we get no, we got, okay, we got five or six people to stop by our house. But we're we're not the action street. And yep. my wife, who did not grow up with the Halloween trick-or-treating experience, is not a thing in Puerto Rico. She goes, I want to see what's going on down oh, there. Boy. And I said, okay, well, the uh, abuela has the baby for now. Let's jump in the car and we'll drive down there. We jump in the car. We drive down there. It's not very far, but it's dark and, it's, you know, whatever. <laughs> and you're lazy. And, and, no, we could have done it, but it would have taken 15 minutes there, 15 minutes back. Right. You know, just jump in the car, add to the to the environmental disaster we're all living through. <laughs> Off to so a I, solid start. Jim. I know. I'm, I'm such everybody loves me right now. And we get we pull up to this street and there are there's like a traffic jam of cars trying to maneuver around one another on a relatively narrow residential street. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? And I watch kids jump out of the car in front of one house Ah, to run up to the door and trick or treat and then jump back in the car. And mom and dad or probably dad drive them back down the street to the next. And I'm like, what is when did this did I miss something? Is there a memo that went out? Did are we now? So look, I. I recognize that we've all freaked out over over safety for our children, right? It's even changed. It was changing when I was a kid when, like, oh, suddenly you can't go outside to play anymore. But is this the thing? Is that what we have to do? We have to jump jump in a car and drive our kids around to trick or treat? Because I thought it was door to door walking. You know, when you get tired, you get tired. That's it. That's all the candy you get. Go home and, you know, you'll eat some tomorrow. That that's how I lived it. I don't know. Yeah, that was definitely a, like, go go wander around and we assume you'll come back at some point. That was maybe more of a, <laughs> a an insight into my into the parenting that I experienced. But yeah, no, I, I'm with you. But it was nice to walk around, man. It's I love I love some Halloween. We did. We dressed as Ted Lasso, which I'm now informed by the Internet. Everyone did. Uh, or I well, guess yeah, that's OK. Look, I did do I did bah humbug the actual Ted Lasso, car, like the, the uh. character Ted Lasso. I did bah humbug that a little bit. I thought uh. that I thought that was a, there was a lot of the but I get it. I do. He's very popular right now. Maybe it's because I lived through the first season. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel as fresh as it might for some people. But I saw yeah. I, I saw a Roy Kent in the wild in my neighborhood. So I was happy. Hey. Of course, I got a thrill out of that. And I was like, hey, Roy Kent. And he did this 
ridiculously bad English accent in, in an attempt to stay in character and respond to me like, oh, yeah, yeah, mate. Hello, Roy Kent here. And I was like, love it. Love it. Let's keep that up. Uh, I was informed by my wife that I cannot do his anger. Like my angry face is just I think I just end up looking constipated more than anything. So that was because I was Roy Kent. And that was my sort of downfall was trying to do. I could do the gravelly voice that he sort of does. I think I just did yeah. Batman. Uh, but but yeah, <laughs> that's kind of where it's at, right? <laughs> I can't quite do the angry face so much. Uh, but yeah, I also I will say we're going to avoid politics to the extent possible. It was like a day or two before I was all excited, like to have her costume ready that I saw Mitt Romney going as Ted Lasso. And I was like, that, that takes us a little bit of a little bit of shine off of it. The other thing that I that I did not, and that's part of the reason I bought Humbug the, the costume, I'll admit. Um, he posted this little gif of him yep. walking through a doorway and touching the believe sign. And yep. the, the, the actual tweet was something about it was like from Friday Night Lights, right? Like, did he mix those on purpose? Did, was there a reference to Friday Night Lights in Ted Lasso that I missed or not a, remembering? I, I just didn't I understand was. what was I, happening there. I think he like paraphrases the clear clear eyes, full hearts or whatever it is. I think he says it a little bit differently or maybe somebody else in the show does. But yeah, okay, that, that was a weird one to go with over okay. all of the many, many possibilities. Maybe it was a deep cut. With. Maybe Mitt Romney is a Ted Lasso super fan and, and I'm the one that looks ridiculous because Mitt's love is total and pure for that show. I don't oh, know. That could be. W- were you yeah. dressed up? We are going to talk about soccer at some point, but as Jason and I are wont to do, <laughs> we're going to go long on Halloween apparently. <laughs> Uh, we went as we, we it was a scramble. There was a Halloween uh-huh. party on Saturday night, even though we knew we weren't necessarily going to go trick or treating. And there was a scramble and we went with with a Ghostbusters theme. Now, the mm. original plan was to put Mr. Thiago, my nine month old son, in like a little Slimer costume. Yep. And then we, the parents, would be the Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. and therefore we were catching Slimer. But uh, that that did not work out. Of course, if you wait until the last minute, you will not get any good costume. <laughs> and I did brave the the party stores on a, on the day before Halloween, oh, which I do not recommend nope. at all. Uh, so we ended up with uh, with with three ghostbuster costumes and then the grandparents who were kind of left out but of course they're in their 70s it's not quite their bag i made them the very the very basic uh sheet ghost costume so they Ah. they they got i didn't wear it for very long but you know they put a sheet on and had little holes for eyes and i Uh made the the big mouth so they could look like uh, classic ghosts and and there yeah that was it that was our costume setup I really do want to talk about soccer, but I've always wondered this. Did you buy white sheets for this? Like, or did you have extra sheets laying around? So I may have made a special run and tried to keep it as budget as possible. But yes, I did. I did buy. I did buy sheets. Uh, The supply chain uh, met the demand in that moment. And I got some sheets. I'm glad that they were not using your uh, your old bed sheets. That was that was good of you, Jason. Also good of you to be here to talk U.S. roster, to talk Major League Soccer. The U.S. roster is out, I believe, late tomorrow morning, like 11 or 1130 on Thursday. So. We're not going to do a ton of speculation about that one because, as Jason messaged me last night, that will be dead in about 20 hours or so. There certainly are people we can talk about that we're almost 100 percent positive will be there. But, yes, the the fringes or maybe the, you know, the the Christian Pulisic question, that Mm -hmm. one's going to be tough, right? Well, let me let me ask you this then with the players that we're confident will be there. Who are the ones that give you the most like, for lack of a better term, comfort when you see them included? The ones that are sort of the U.S. safety blanket for you. Uh, I think Miles Robinson has gotten to that level, really? which is pretty right. remarkable uh, for, you know, for an MLS kid, uh, college product. I mean, everybody knew he was going to be good when he got to Atlanta, but I don't think 
I don't think we saw him as essential at center back for the U.S. men's national team at, at this point in his career. He's not, you know, he's not one of the young ones in the same way that that Reyna or or Yunus um, Musa are young, right? He's uh, what twenty three, almost twenty four, might be twenty four even. And Crafty that's, veteran. Crafty yeah, old veteran. by soccer standards, right? Especially when you're starting your career. But he has kind of turned himself into the guy I, I trust the most back there. And look, I'll admit there's some recency bias there as well. I think John Brooks is still extremely trustworthy. And I do want to see him in the team against Mexico. But I, I acknowledge that he had some bad moments in September. And that has colored my my view of him. Um, otherwise, uh, Tyler Adams. I mean, that that's the one, right? I'm moving up mm-hmm. the formation clearly. Tyler Adams is the other one. I don't know, like, um, I don't know beyond that, but beyond those two, if there's anybody yeah. where I'm like, okay, yeah, that's 100%. I feel comfortable with that about that player and his performance in the biggest moments possible. What about those youngsters you mentioned? Who are the ones that you are, like, hyped to see that you sort of, like, you're maybe leading that hype train, you're on board that hype train, ready to go for them to come good? Man, um, well, I mean, I guess the Ricardo Pepe hype train is yeah. already under full steam and we don't really have to worry about I mean, you know, he's going to hit pockets where he doesn't score and he's going to have bad games. And and I think that was always the bargain. And and I, I I think about this in a narrative respect. I mean, as long as the goals come from somewhere, it doesn't matter, right? The United States needs the points. They got to qualify. That's what I care about at the end of the day. I've said this several times. They can win every match one nothing on a dodgy penalty. And as long as the points are there at the end and they are in the World Cup in 2022, mm-hmm. I will be fine. I may worry about their uh, their setup and how they play and their form and things like that next summer. But for the time being, like let's just get to the World Cup. And so when when Ricardo Pepe scores goals, the moment he's in the lineup for the U.S. Men's National Team, that's it's great on a couple levels. It's great for the national team just to have a goal scorer in that position, something we haven't had for a little while. It's also great that he is representing his community. People like him. I mean, I cannot speak to that experience, but I want to make sure that I try to understand just how important it is to have a Mexican-American player who chose the United States and is doing something like that and getting his opportunity to shine and serving as a an example and a role model for young players. I think that's extremely important. But he's 18, so he was at some point, you know, he's going to stop being Zlatan Ibrahimovic and he's going to be an 18-year-old American uh, center forward yeah. from FC Dallas. And I, I think he'll be okay because I do think he has those those blinkers that sometimes extremely confident young players have where nothing phases them. I do think that's who Ricardo Pepe is from my view of him from the outside. But I don't know how the fans are going to necessarily respond if if that maybe we're just so high on him now. It doesn't really matter. And he continues to be the choice until proven otherwise. Uh, I, I guess that's yeah. where we're at. I, I think it probably is. I think uh, my assumption would be that he starts at, at center forward against Mexico, which is, is a big deal for an 18 oh, year old who yeah. does not have a ton of caps so far. But I think it also does speak to like the lack of depth behind him. And so maybe we'll see him struggle and somebody else comes in and scores a goal and then they're the next big thing. But I don't know who that player would be because Jesse Zardes has the injury. Josh Sargent mm. could be in the squad, but isn't scoring goals or getting assists in the Premier League and doesn't seem like things are great there. Uh, Jordan Pifuck is playing in Europe, but I think has not played the last two games, and so doesn't seem like the automatic starter. So really, it feels like it comes down to Ricardo Pepe and then maybe Daryl DK as the right. striking option. Yeah, and it's Daryl DK that I think that you know people still have high hopes for in the national team setup. And again, this is the this is the balance between 
hope and expectation versus where these players are in their careers. I mean, I, it was it was always going to happen that Daryl TK was going to regress at some point or have a bad run or get hurt or whatever it was going to be. I mean, even more than Pepe, Pepe had this clear pathway. It goes from El Paso. It gets identified. He moves to Dallas. His family comes with him. He's in the academy. He scores goals in the third division in the USL League One team that Dallas runs. He's doing all these things that that are, you know, he's coming, right? You know he's coming. The train is is in the distance down the tracks, and you know it's coming, and, it, and it's going to get there eventually. DK, who was extremely good in high school in Oklahoma, I mean, for whatever that means, <laughs> Went to Virginia, did some nice things, but to have him arrive at MLS as a drafted player and do what he did in the first, what, full one one year of mm-hmm. a professional experience. I mean, again, that it's a lot to ask. And, and instead of being disappointed, we kind of have to understand the reality of it, except that we are desperate for that center forward. And before Pepe came along, it was DK. I don't think DK has necessarily been derailed by expectation. I, I just think that we are so... <laughs> we're, we're so desperate for that player yep. to step up and be the guy that we're tagging a 20 year old with one year of professional experience and saying, you're the man. It's like, is he though? Is he re- right now? Is he, is he right now? I think it's always like, you're the man right now in this moment, because you did something. But as soon as you don't, we'll see who else could be the man. Like, I think right. that's what us fans would desperately like is a Ford who can come in and either is just going to be the automatic starter. And we know what they're going to bring. And then they back it up with a goal here and there. Ideally, more often a goal than that. Uh, but I think it, it it continues to be this sort of roll of the dice and we're not quite sure who fits and where and who's doing the best job. And I think that leads to some of that looking towards greener pastures, looking towards dual nationals, looking towards 18-year-olds who haven't made a senior appearance yet, yeah. but maybe they could play for the national team. Well, it, it, that position may be not more than any other position because they're all in the same bow, but that position is indicative of the gap between generations for the United States, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, we looked at Josie Altador, you know, his tank kind of ran out. Obviously, he was on the field in Cuba, so he gets saddled with that uh, that failure, even though he was a great player for the United States at various points in his career. But there was nobody directly behind Josie. And so we're waiting and waiting and waiting. And then, you know, Josh Sargent, he makes the move for, to Werder Bremen. He gets started loaded up with expectations even before we even knew who DK or Pepe were. I mean, that's that's the thing, right? And I think that maybe if you are looking for a silver lining, and again, Pepe has scored goals from the national team, so maybe you don't even need one. But if you're looking for a silver lining, there are several young and still improving slash unproven center forward options that we can hope at least by 2026, you know, are in the prime of their careers. I'm not sure that, you know, when the United States lost to Trinidad and Cuba, we really had an idea of who was going to be next at all. There was just... Center forward in particular seemed to be a dry well. So, and I'm not saying that there are a lot of great young center forwards in U.S. systems right now, but there seem to be more than there used to be, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there there are more in a variety of different leagues at different levels. I think we are more used to having at least the sort of established name that we know will start if they're fit, and that's been Josie Altador. Uh, most recently, but I feel like that was Brian McBride for a good long time. We've had other sort of number nines who we can rely on, and maybe there's injury issues, so we've got to figure out who comes in behind them. But but I think it's a strange position to be in that we have 
it being the number nine as that sort of spot that we aren't so sure about. There's always that one position, I think, with World Cup qualifying and World Cups that we don't know. Do we have the depth in holding midfield in 2002 or in center back in pretty much every other year or left fullback or right fullback? <laughs> like, back, yeah. There's always that issue, and it feels like I think we're not used to it being a more attacking position because we tend to have decent attackers. It seems like we should have better defenders. It does feel like it's left back a lot of the time, but maybe that's just it is that we're not used to the number nine spot. Yeah. Being the, I, I wonder, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to be reductive with this um, if I can help it, but I, but there is something to be said. I, I think there's an, a discussion to be had about the emphasis that was placed, oh, I don't know, uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. I mean, think of when MLS academies were really starting up. Uh, think about how, how the DA started to impact the way the players were developed. There was this emphasis on technical players, right, on on players who could uh, beat a defender 1v1, players, uh, you know, players who could do things with the ball at their feet. And that's not to say that there weren't other kids who could still do things center forwards can do, but but we seem to have a glut of wingers, right? Like suddenly we have a glut of these these wide forward players that it's great to have that. I mean, it's where Christian Pulisic comes from. Giovanni Reina is more of a tweener, so it's probably not fair to saddle him uh-huh. with just that wing label. But there are lots of players like that and, and in ver- through various mechanisms. I mean, through various, like whether they were dual nationals or if they came through an MLS system or whatever, but we just didn't center forward seemed to kind of be a, a place where we weren't making as many players. And maybe that is because we were like, okay, well we got to focus on the other, so other thing. We weren't very good at for a very long time instead of just making another Brian McBride instead of making another Josie out door. And I know it's not like that. It's not like a Play-Doh machine. <laughs> you just put it in and squeeze it. And now you have a center forward, but you know, I think there's something to that. Yeah, man. You know, I- Weirdly, I'm going to put a lot of the blame for this on Barcelona, the obvious place to do yeah, it. There's but that. I th- sure. But I th- but I, bear with me, because I feel like I feel like what you just said sort of like triggered is the wrong word, but made me realize that I think growing up, I, most of the teams that I played for or played against played a 4-4-2. That was the sort of dominant formation for youth yeah. soccer. And yeah. so because because you're right, it hadn't occurred to me we have so many wingers. And I was thinking about why do we have so many wingers? And to me, it's because when I was playing you had right midfielder, left midfielder, four four two, and then you had the goal scorers. You had your two center forwards who would be out there scoring the goals and kind of got the glory. The midfielders did all the running, did all the crossing, did all, sort of the overlapping runs with the fullbacks and all that good stuff, but there wasn't as much of the attacking play to it, and so I don't think we had the wingers. And so I think about why that would be more in vogue, the four three three, and I think of Spain, and I think of Barcelona, Mm-hmm. making that 4-3-3 shape happen. And mm-hmm. I think about like the dominant systems now with Pep, like whoever whoever knows if they're playing a number nine and if it is a number nine, is it a conventional number nine or a false right. nine or whatever it yeah. might be. Roberto Firmino for Liverpool. I would say goal scoring is not his primary skill. It's facilitating the attacking play from those wingers. And I wonder if just wing play has become so much more important, at least in American soccer to my knowledge, at least it has been. I don't know if yeah. I can speak for everybody, but I wonder how much that's part of it. Is that the kind of changing formations that people were coached in and played growing up emphasize that wing play less so that number nine play? Yeah, well, there's, there's certainly there's the, the discussion about how formations and responsibilities and how a, how a position adds or you know what that mm-hmm. that player's supposed to do within that system impacts a wider perception of similar players right and where and and again like you know as you said we're in an era where 
a number nine is a number nine, but is it also a false nine? Is that mm-hmm. a, is goal scoring the, the main responsibility? I mean, we celebrate a player like Lewandowski because he's just so prolific. But are we more? Uh, and then do we have we lost the ability to sort of analyze and and process what a player who doesn't score a ton of goals from that position does? I mean, and, and you can't as you as you're coaching a player. Are you telling a player who plays? as a center forward, okay, your job isn't to score goals. I mean, that's not the message that you want to send, right? But then you get them to a certain level, and now everybody's playing a 4-3-3, and hey, your job is to drop in, your job is to play back to goal, your your job is to get it wide so that these wingers can do what they do. Oh, we're going to get late runs from midfield. I mean, you know, (laughs) how how do you sort of fit in a traditional idea of a center forward with the way that a lot of these teams are playing? And then as fans who are watching this, and some of us more in tune with the trends and the tactics than others. How are we supposed to evaluate properly a player who maybe goes eight or nine games without scoring, but who the coach keeps saying he's crucial to what we're doing and he, and we, we wouldn't be the same without him. Man, it, it's, it's strange. It's really strange to think about. And I do sort of feel a bit like, like old man shouting at cloud here. But I, like, I think about when I was like going through and getting my coaching licenses and coaching like U10, U11. So, you know, young youngsters, but like, I remember our, our, the director of the club I coached for talking about how you don't just play the biggest, strongest kid up top. That's what everybody does, but all they do is rely on that size and that speed. They don't learn how to play. They just kind of bash in those goals, but then everybody catches up to them in their size or in their speed. And then they haven't learned any skills to deal with it. And, and I wonder how much there's been the overemphasis on it, like everybody can play every position. You've got to have technical ability. You've got to be able to drop in and link up play and, and vacate space and occupy. And like, I wonder if it is just like, you know, we got to score some goals too at the same time. So may, maybe yeah. like I am far removed from coaching, so I shouldn't really be speculating too much aside to say that, yeah, I wouldn't mind some more number nine options who can just kind of bang in the goals uh, as needed yeah. because yeah. I want us to score goals. I want us to go to the World Cup. Yeah, I think it's okay if you're. I mean, whatever. It depends on how you want to process the game yourself, how how in depth you want to be with all of this. But I think it's okay as a fan to look at a player like Ricardo Pepe and say, you know what he does? He scores goals. Yep. Everything else is mm-hmm. secondary. I don't care if he. I don't care if he does anything else that Greg Berhalter wants him to do, or that you know a modern nine is supposed to do. He gets on the end of a of a ball every now and then, scores a goal. That's important to us. Let's put him in the lineup and start him. And I and I, I I've made that argument right because I think most people are are on the Pepe train mm-hmm. as U.S. men's national team fans. But if you you know if you do want to look a little bit deeper and say, well, is he refined in these other parts of his game at eighteen? No, he's probably not. But if he scores more often than Jossie's artist does, or Josh Sargent does, or Jordan Pivak does, or anybody else in that, then yes, put that guy on the field because we need goals. We do, and there's and there is that weird intangible skill set to being that number nine who can score the goals. You mentioned Robert Lewandowski; I think he's a good example. I think Kareem Benzema is a good example. That if you yeah. ask somebody aside from like a dedicated Real Madrid fan, like fan, or a dedicated Bayern Munich fan, if you ask somebody what is the thing that Robert Lewandowski does well or Benzema does well, I think they'll say score goals certainly, but. It's tough to kind of quantify like, what they do. Is it like the darting runs of Lewandowski? Is it is it his hold up play? His presence in the air for Benzema? Is it his shots from distance or his shots up close? Is it his kind of intelligence in the box? I think it's a, a lot of different things, but it's hard to pinpoint exactly because a lot of it ends up being 
Robert Lewandowski gets on the end of a cross from six yards out. Robert Lewandowski gets a little yeah. shot off from eight yards out or Benzema from nine yards out. And it's the ability to just find the back of the net that sort of does supersede a lot of other skill sets and aspects of the game that we get into sometimes and maybe get overly focused on sometimes. Yeah, I, I, sometimes I, it's okay to just be that goal scorer, as you said. Right. I, 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 I kind of like that there's this ineffable thing about that position and huh. those players. I, I look, I understand that we want to try to understand everything. Uh, I, I live with an engineer. She wants to understand how everything works, <laughs> why something is happening. We're doing a, you know, we're refinancing our house and she wants to go through every line of the contract. And I'm like, no, I just want to go. I want to go play video games. What are we doing here? <laughs> you know, she wants to understand why does this number look like that? And why does that number look like this? <laughs> we want to understand. I get it. And and that's what advanced uh, statistics yeah. are for. It's what analytics are for at the, at the scene. And, and I, and I'm not the kind of person I just watched a clip of Pablo Mastroeni when he was the head coach of the, the Rapids saying that none of those things can measure heart and spirit, and all that stuff. And I'm like, oh, no, boy. Pablo, don't be that guy. I yeah. don't want to be that guy. I want to admit no. that they have a place. I want to acknowledge they have a place in our understanding of the game. But man, some players, they just do things that we can't really explain. Not, not, not. You can look at the results and you can say, well, you know, he created a better XG value shot in that moment than a similar player, than another player, than a contemporary of his. But what? How do you explain that? Other yeah. than he has something innate in him, some either it's it, maybe it's not natural ability, maybe it's refined. I think Chris Wondolowski is a good example of this. A guy who just worked really, really hard so that he could be, in addition to some natural talent, he could be the player who makes the three yard run to arrive perfectly at that moment to put the goal away. I mean, it doesn't look hard, but it is. Otherwise, mm. everybody would do it. Yeah, it's. Uh... Is it the Cruyff quote about like it's it's like the hardest thing in the world is to play like simple soccer or something like that? Like I always, always attribute attribute random quotes to Johan Cruyff. It's, it yeah, always, like, it's, it's always Cruyff though, yeah. yeah. And, and it and it also comes back to me to like the Michael Jordan like insane levels of dedication and focus to the point of it being like maybe an addiction. Uh, but <laughs> right. that, is it healthy? It we don't know. But yeah, keep doing not. it. Yeah. <laughs> but you've got to learn that like okay, like the offseason. Those are all the famous stories about him and Kobe. Is the same that like okay. Like season ends, off season begins. What was I deficient in this season? I wasn't good at this. Well, then that's what I'm going to work on for the first like month of of the off season to improve that. And I think it does require that sort of hyper competitiveness because, I mean, professional sports on the whole do. But when you're looking at soccer, I think there are certain positions that require that just little extra bit versus the ability to read a game or the ability mm -hmm. to have that touch. But I think when you're talking about a number nine who's got to kind of outwork people, outmuscle people, but outthink people, you need that that focus, that just sort of intensity to compete that Michael Jordan had. Basically, Michael Jordan would be my starting forward if we were drafting a Man. non uh, wow. non soccer soccer team. I think Can Michael you Jordan imagine? would be my number one all time. Taylor, could you imagine if our best athletes played soccer? Could, could you? you imagine what could that would you? be like? Could you? <laughs> <laughs> Let's not do that. Let's instead say this. You mentioned the Mastroeni, like comment about heart and effort, and we've got to run. And I, at the risk of going down that rabbit hole for a moment, I would say I know where that comes from, and I and I yeah. like am resistant to it because I think so often. It, it 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 gets folded into like we don't need tactics we don't need right. data or yeah. anal analytics it's it's about effort it's about heart and i think from my perspective what so many of those ex players are talking about is i think there seems to be a vibe within the us national team or there has been since the early mid 90s until 
pretty much like 2016, there seems to have been this like understanding that if you're going into play for the United States, you're going to work. You're going to run really hard. The U.S. was early into the idea of extra training and and extra sort of ways of teaching fitness so that the U.S. always had those kind of extra reserves when it came to World Cup qualifying in the World Cup. And it seemed to have been a, a sort of collective spirit and that collective feeling of, hey, we're all working really hard in training because we're all sort of coming from the same experience, the same background. We know what we've got to do to get this done. And I do wonder... As we Nobody have more believes youngsters. in us. Nobody respects us. Yeah, exactly. Us. The chip on the yeah. shoulder. Nobody believes in us. And as we have more players going abroad and playing for like bigger and bigger clubs and, and learning the tactics at a younger age and learning how important tactical ability is and technical ability is, but also, you know, like Christian Pulisic is going to spend his early 20s, ideally, playing mm-hmm. for Chelsea in London in the Champions League and will continue to play there. And Weston McKinney is playing for Juve. And I do often wonder how hard it is to then come back to a U.S. national team where you're being yeah. told, we got to work, we got to run, and, and have that level of, like just like switch that you can flip into, okay, now we got to work. Now we got to be really diligent and focused and hard running. Not to say they're not training for Chelsea, but I just think it's, it's hard probably to go from playing in the Premier League in Stanford bridge or in Italy with, with, you know, like thousands and thousands of angry fans, either on your side or against you to then come play in a world cup qualifier where you're going on the road and you've got to sort of be on a bus and you've got to play cards and you don't get to like, I don't know. It just, I wonder how difficult that transition could be to keep that identity alive i think that i think the psychological shift for the national team has been pretty dramatic i think it has i I don't you know can't speak to it directly haven't been on any buses haven't gone to any central american locale certainly haven't played stanford bridge but I, i i think it's i think it is sort of natural to imagine that a player who's in the most lofty environments of european football in a place like juventus or chelsea or or borussia Dortmund or wherever you know there's a a certain mindset that comes that, yeah, you have to be on your game because there's somebody behind you who's going to take your place and, and the, the media is intense and there's demands on you and all those things. But, you know, it's it's it, it's got to be sort of like, OK, well, th- this is this yeah. is. I, yeah. And then, and then to go back into an environment. And I, I was talking to Heath Pierce before the Jamaica game about his experience in, in World Cup qualifying, and he talked about playing one time in Central America. I can't remember which nation it was. And and he's got to play against this winger, a guy who he had seen in MLS a little bit, had had a cup of coffee in MLS, but was mostly playing in Central America. A guy who, you know, had a good career as a soccer player, got to play professional soccer, but never really got out of out of Central America. And he said, this guy was just running me ragged, like all over the field. I couldn't catch up with, and I knew I was faster than him. And I knew I was better than he was. And he kept rounding the corner on me. And he's like, I don't know what that was. I mean, he literally said, I don't know what that was. And I think that, you know, for this group, the the group that has graduated to bigger and better things, which we always wanted for American soccer, we always wanted guys in Champions League clubs and not, uh, no offense to Sasha Kleschen, not Anderlecht. We wanted them at Chelsea. Yeah. We wanted them at, at Juventus. We have that now. I definitely think that there's there's a difference in shift shifting into that environment. And you have that now it's exacerbated. Now, Heath Pierce certainly was in Major League Soccer and and he played a little bit in Europe and everything, but he wasn't at those lofty levels and he still had an issue with that. He still had an issue with trying to figure out how to play against somebody for whom it was the biggest game of their life against the United States. It's not the biggest game of Weston McKinney's career playing against Honduras in World Cup qualifying. It's just not. You know, Barcelona and the Champions League is a little bit bigger for him 
than than Honduras in World Cup qualifying. So I don't I don't know. I mean, I think that this is the task that Burhalter has taking a young group that thinks very highly of themselves for good reason yeah. and makes them understand that, you know, that stuff doesn't really matter once you get to San Pedro Sula or once you get to San Salvador. These things those things, they don't go out the window. You're still a talented player, but you cannot be anything but completely t- turned on or it's going to be tough. I, I, you know, I, yeah. I don't want to make it into excuse. I talk about this sometimes. I don't want to make this into an excuse like, oh, we can never overcome this this thing we now have where our players are in such disparate locales and they're playing in different leagues. What other national team in the world has been able to be very successful with this? kind? Of, I mean, Brazil, I guess, is the example can we overcome that? And especially without this sort of, I know this is a little reductive too, national identity of what our, our soccer character is or how we play or whatever. And even if, you know, even if it's, it's again, reductive to say that German football is this or Italian football is that in a modern sense, when the bulk of those teams come from domestic leagues that are thought of as the best in the world and the players who are coming from outside of, those leagues and are playing abroad grew up in those environments and know those clubs and probably played for some of those clubs. I think it's a little easier to pull it all together, right? To stitch it into a cohesive thing than it is. If you're like Juve and Barca Mm -hmm. and Borussia Dortmund. Oh, and also MLS. So, and and also we've got a guy that's, you know, in the, in the second division in uh, Sweden or whatever, because who knows with the United States, right? I, I think it's probably easy. And again, I don't know what the answer is. I yeah. think it's a, I think it makes it hard for us again to properly evaluate where this team should be. And it's frustrating. It is. I think, honestly, though, you've made me feel slightly less frustrated with the point about the United States effectively having targets on their backs and that it's it's what happens when the team wins the championship next season. Everyone knows they're playing the, the champions. So every game teams, even the worst teams, are going to get up and really be after it because this is our chance to beat the champions. And to some extent, I feel like the United States has that reputation, especially in CONCACAF. And they do win the Gold Cup, don't get me wrong, but I think about other national teams that sort of have targets on their backs whenever they play, and it's Brazil, Germany, Argentina, England. It's countries that have won the World Cup and can back that up with world-class players. The United States is getting there, but it, it is a strange thing to have this team that isn't at that level of those other uh, national teams I just mentioned right. still have their opponents being more up for that game than they would be for any other game that year and maybe in their career. And yeah. for the U.S., it's, oh, I've got to go play in Panama and then i got to get back to playing for Juve in the Champions League. I imagine it's hard to not sort of just relax a little bit, not have that level of 100% focus you maybe need when you're playing for a really competitive club day in and day out and you've got all these people around you who want to take your spot. You have that with the U.S., certainly. You have that at national team level, certainly. But I do think it's probably hard to keep operating at 100% energy levels for both club and country for an entire year. Yeah, I think I think that's probably right. And again, I mean, this it's not a binary. It's not one or the other. Advanced analytics, and we lo- we're looking at all the numbers, and we're tracking how many how many uh, how much ground mm-hmm. these players are covering, and we're putting that into a computer, and we're crunching the. No- it can't be just yeah. that, and it can't also just be about spirit and heart and energy mm-hmm. and and camaraderie and all. But to figure out where where this what this team needs more of in any given moment, how you pull them together, how you in what two days, three days ahead of a match, get them on the same page 
not just, hey, this is how we're going to play, but also mentally, that's it's a gargantuan task. It really, really is. It doesn't mean you give Greg Berhalter a pass because there should still be expectations and the United States is still talented enough that qualification should be a foregone conclusion. I really do believe that. I don't think that that is I don't think that that that, that meets this um, uh, th- this argument about how the United States has all this hubris and we're we're overconfident. We treat teams lightly. I'm not, I'm not sure I buy. I, again, I think that's also a binary that we fall into. I think it's very easy after the United States struggles to beat Panama, loses to Panama to go, oh, they took them lightly. Is that really what it was? Is it really those players just thought they could walk out on that field and beat Panama? I don't I'm not sure that that's what that was, but I don't know what it was. So I can't mm-hmm. put a name on it. and I can't tell you you're wrong. I, see, I don't think it's ever in my in my perspective, again, not playing national team level. Uh, but I like I could see a scenario in which you just think like, yeah, it's Panama. Like we know. Like if you played amateur soccer, you probably have that experience. If you played indoor, if you're a listener who's played indoor soccer and you know, like, ah, oh, we're playing the second worst team in the division. Like it shouldn't be too tough of a game right there. If that opponent shows up and they're up for it and let's intensify that further to like, no, this team has always wanted to beat your team, which is the analogy I'm drawing to sure. CONCACAF. Sure. Like I can see players but, sort of showing up expecting like, ah, we got okay, all this but, talent. We're going to beat Panama and then maybe in- not being switched on. In your scenario, we're talking about it. You know, you show it's all oh, look at the standings of the second worst team in the in the league. We should beat them. You didn't constantly in the week leading up to that game have people telling you, "Don't take them lightly. Don't take them lightly. Mm-hmm. It's tough, difficult. You're playing a you're playing in their in their building and not your building, and that makes it tougher." And don't this we have history here. And trust me when I tell you that Alexi Lalas and Heath Pierce and all these other guys will will give you an earful about how hard it is in Kankakee. Unless those guys had had beats by Dre on blasting the highest level possible and just missed all of that i can't imagine they didn't know on some level against at least intellectually what they were supposed to be dealing with and again you have to you have to be supremely overconfident to go oh yeah they're all saying this but i don't believe any of it we're just gonna walk in there and beat panama yeah but i mean isn't that doesn't that kind of track with what we're saying so far (laughs) that like i i can see that i can see a a 20 year old who has the world at their feet sort of thinking like, yeah, I'm sure Alexi's saying that. Yeah, I'm sure Heath is saying that. But like, come on, I can handle this. And I think there yeah. is I don't even mean that as like these kids today got to tighten up. I mean, like <laughs> I get that and I understand that level of like confidence in yourself. And I think it can be hard. I think that's what the coach's job is, is to kind of get through that. Going back to Ted Lasso, it's about reaching y- young people, young men before they are like and trying to impart upon them wisdom such that they can use it on the field and that's i i love that explanation of soccer from that show about that like a coach's job is to try to teach them the best he can and hope that some of that wisdom gets instilled for the game yeah but you can't yeah. call plays you can't call timeouts and have them reset it's going to be kind of flowing and it's up to you to get them ready and if you don't get them ready then i guess you yeah. don't beat panama yeah. my question then for you jason to go back <laughs> to a point you made uh, was about like maybe not necessarily caring how we win or the style yeah. that we play when we win. And and I know where you're coming from there. I agree. I just want to make it to the World Cup. But if you did want there to be a style, like what would you look for? What do you want to see from the United States when you see them play? Even if it's a 1-0 win or a 5-0 win, I'm assuming there are some things that you enjoy seeing. Yeah, I mean, I look, I, I 
look, there is so much potential in the group and, and, you know, talent wise, again, I still think this is the most talented group the United States has ever had at this point in qualifying. The age is a factor here. I think experience does or lack thereof does matter on some level. But man, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm picturing the way that they played uh, in that second half against Jamaica. I mean, you got Eunice Musa pushing the ball forward uh, at his feet. You know, he's drawing defenders to him. Weston McKinney is kind of all over the map, drawing players out of position, making runs. You have those those wingers getting in behind, which I, I think is obviously something Berhalter has talked a lot about recently. Um, you got to find a way to get them, get them the ball. You have to have players that can do that. Serginho Dest and and the the utility of having a, a player like him in the attacking third from that position and just like the extra body. I mean, we're talking about the the wing position for Serginho Dest, and I admit that it might be fun. I don't think it's been a, a complete home run with Barcelona, and, and I think that without Giovanni Reina, there is at least an opening possibly there. But I, I, I think that having him from a fullback position, also having uh, a winger out there, I, I want to see that. I've seen enough. Oh, that's the thing. I've seen enough in that last window, minus the game against Panama in the middle, because Berhalter made so many changes to think, hey, this is the way that they're going to win games, right? This is the way that they're going to take advantage of Brendan Aronson's work rate when he's on the field. And uh, although we haven't seen it in a while, Christian Pulisic, get him isolated, let him do what he does from a wide position. I don't really want to see him dropping back in the midfield. I want to see them be able to find a way to get him the ball higher up the field initially. and then with those runners crashing the box, create chaos, let him potentially put something in that's going to find the back of the net. I mean, I think we've seen those patterns of play work to this point. I'm not sure that there's anything I would want to see different. I mean, I don't need as much as I know this is out there. I don't need a Giovanni Reina as a number 10 sort of standing 30 yards from goal with the ball at his feet, trying to to pick out the perfect pass. I I think they need Mm -hmm. to be moving at all times. and, And that's what we see. All right. I I like that analysis. I like those things to look for. And I'm excited to see this roster. But we've gone very long, as we are wont to do. Uh, I said, Jason, maybe we'll go like 30 minutes. And we have gone well over that. So that wasn't going to happen. I do want to ask you before we go, as did I. But uh, I appreciate you building in the time for it. Uh, We do have Decision Day coming up this weekend. Uh, Mm -hmm. Jason, broadly speaking, I don't want to ask you about all the permutations and everything like that. But who are you most excited to see? in the playoffs uh, for either conference. I'm going to assume New England is in there, but mostly for folks like myself who have not paid nearly as much attention as they should be to Major League Soccer. There's way too much soccer and way too many other things going on. But yeah, I'm wondering who you just sort of enjoy watching these days. Who are the ones that you want to see in the playoffs and ideally go deep in the playoffs at that? Uh, I know they're not looking great right now relative to their high standards, but Seattle and Seattle's in the playoffs and just a matter where they finish. I mean, I I think that that, they always get the most out of guys like Ladero. And obviously, Morris coming back, that's going to be fascinating. It's not necessarily about the way that they play in all regards, although I do I do kind of like watching Christian Roldan be an agent of chaos for them, even if it doesn't always transfer over to the national team. Uh, if he continues to have that role, again, with Ladero back, don't know if he's going to be playing exactly the same way. Uh, but I I like Christian Roldan a lot as a player. I mean, I, I that doesn't mean I want to see him start for the national team, but I do like him a lot as a player, and I think that in in Seattle it really does work. So I'm fascinated by that. Portland is fun because they are they're capable of scoring five, but also conceding five. Uh, so I think Portland, who's already booked their spot by virtue of results last night as we record this, 
I think they could be interesting. I don't. They could be one and done, or they could make a run to the MLS Cup final. And I think that's uh, th- that's what I want to see. I want to see teams that have high potential, but also could crash and burn within one round of of games. I, I was listening to everything you said, but I was writing down the title for this episode, which will be why Jason Davis wants Christian Roldan to start versus Mexico. <laughs> so just know that that's coming. Uh, sure. Yeah. Jason. That's what you- Throw you mentioned the out there the, the the chum in the waters. Do it. That's do it. Yeah. You mentioned Kuva earlier. Uh, another thing that I want to go back to for a moment, just because I I know who was in charge there, and I know where he coaches now, and I know how good they are right now. I don't really know how to understand New England, and I don't want to be the guy who comes in and says negative things about a team that has been so dominant and so comprehensively for so long. Mm-hmm. But basically, I'm asking you, make sense of Bruce Arena for me, please. Make sense of Bruce Arena. Um, yeah. I think Bruce Arena, Bruce Arena knows how to let players be themselves i don't mean that in like some kumbaya like you know self-help kind of way i just mean that bruce arena doesn't over manage players i mean he he puts guys on the field who are good and says okay be good in the positions that you are good at and i think that's 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 you know it's again it's simple it sounds simple but there are so many coaches and i think burhalter has been guilty of this who overthink things and and try to be too crafty and too too clever and bruce is not interested in being extra clever he's interested in in helping his players you know be uh, to, to setting them up to to succeed and i know again that sounds simple but when you have when you have a, a couple of very good goal scorers in Bo and buxa when you have a player like carlos hill when you have matt polster who does a lot of dirty work and doesn't seem to to care that that's all his job is it's going to it's going to work most of the time against some mls teams who don't know what their roles are or don't or don't have the experience levels that yeah. those players have. And, you know, he, you look around that team and there's there, the three DPs certainly jump off the page. And Tejan Buchanan jumps off the page. Don't don't discount his impact as just sort of this this X factor who maybe people didn't know was going to be as good as he is. And now you have to account for him defensively. And that's certainly going to make them uh, more dangerous and allow for more space for Bo and for Buxa and, and all of that. I don't that that's a major part of it. But they, they have guys they're getting a lot out of guys like Tommy McNamara and guys like Andrew Farrell, who's been in New England, I think, for a decade and a half at this, but feels like forever that Andrew Farrell has been in New England. And he's played a couple of different positions, center back and fullback. Um, you know, Dewan Jones is a kind of a limited player for me, but in that system, he works. So, I, you know, you, you can't really say more than Bruce Arena defines things for his players and then lets them play those positions, lets them play in those ways. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that that is similar to what you hear about somebody like Carlo Ancelotti and why he is so popular with big clubs is that he's able to kind of get these players who command massive salaries and have tons of experience and tons of international prestige that he gets them all to kind of buy in because I think he creates that atmosphere and doesn't overcomplicate. I think oftentimes people point to that arena quote about like tactics are stupid or whatever it was. But I think that gets overblown a little bit because obviously he cares about shape and what's happening in the game. But I think probably that that veteran experience that you mentioned is a big part of it, that he can see what's happening in a game and I think just has the relationship with his players well, and the ability to communicate with them I to say, you go in there and do this. I don't think Bruce, I mean, I don't know. I haven't been in his locker room, but I don't think Bruce is the kind of guy that talks about 
certain patterns or, you know, yeah. the way that, you know, the way that you'll hear a coach talk about, we, we want to get the ball into this area of the field and then we create an overload. And now, we, you know, he doesn't get granular like that. And that's not even the most granular you can get with, with tactics, obviously, but he doesn't even talk about that stuff. Because again, I think as you're right, he, he shape matters, right? I, I want this player in this general area. I want that player in this general area. Uh, this player's job is to cover this kind of ground defensively, whatever. And then that's kind of it. You know, and, and I don't know if this would work in every league. I don't know if it works in the Premier League, certainly not in terms of winning a championship level. But in Major League Soccer, it works. And in Major League Soccer, with a, a group of role players behind guys that are making a couple million bucks a year, it's a recipe for a championship. He did it in L.A. He's going to do it again. I don't know if they're going to win the, t- the title, but he's done it again in New England. There we go. Well, congratulations to New England. Hopefully it goes well in the playoffs. Hopefully it goes well for everyone in the playoffs. And Jason, hopefully the uh, the trip you've got coming up goes well for you. What is your plan for for deadline day and or decision day, excuse me, and beyond? Uh, Decision day, I'll be on the radio right after uh, the final matches in the Western Conference, uh, Sirius XM FC. So if you have Sirius XM channel 157, come and join me as we break down what the MLS Cup playoff picture looks like after the final uh, final games of the regular season. There we are. There Jason we are. Davis, thank you, as always, uh, for taking the time and then thank the extra Taylor. time to talk with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Taylor. Listeners, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you all again soon. 